Hello and welcome to More Than Tracy Turnblad, the podcast about fat representation in entertainment. My name is Abby Rose Morris, and today I'm interviewing Amara Janae Brady, a generative artist and cultural dramaturg based in New York. Amara acts, writes, and even produces a YouTube series called Skinny and White Aren't Character Traits. In this paper, I'll explain. So we have a lot of really cool things to talk about today. But first, I want to remind you that there are 10 days left of the GoFundMe for Season 2. Please donate if you have not already. And if you would like to support the podcast in a non-monetary way, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us so much. And now I want to talk to you about a fat trope I've sort of become more aware of recently. And the reason I've become a little more aware of this is because within the same week, I watched Goodfellas for the first time and started watching The Sopranos. And that is The Fat Gangster, or Mafioso. So the funny thing is, in these stories about the mob is the most fat representation I've ever seen on screen at once, at least in something from the times in which these movies and shows were made. It's crazy, like, there are so many fat bodies, like, populating this world. They are all men, or at least mostly men, or or if a woman is fat, she's, like, old and a mom. <laughs> so the fat representation, I would not say, is the most progressive, and all the women are, like, rail thin, who are, you know, under 70, pretty much. Um, but there are so many fat men. And I think that the fat mafioso plays into a lot of fat stereotypes, right? Like fatness being immoral, fat people being greedy and, you know, selfish and willing to go to any lengths and indulgent and not playing by the rules of society, really. Like that's kind of a big mob thing. But I hesitate to say this trope is completely bad. Because sometimes these characters get a little bit more nuance. An obvious example of that is Tony Soprano. And I would also raise you characters like Polly in Goodfellas because he kind of raises the main character. And even though he gets him involved in the mob, he also was like really there for him and ends up kind of trying to like talk him out of going so deep into organized crime towards the end of the movie. So it's it's really interesting. You don't fully see fat characters as just one trope. Like within the mafia guys, you see them in all kinds of different ways. You know, some of them are like the, the kind of brute fat trope of like really strong, really mean kind of guys. Some of them are more fatherly, like Polly. And then of course you have Tony Soprano, who is probably one of the most nuanced fat characters who's ever been on TV. And, you know, it's so funny because I like did I it never even occurred to me to talk about him as fat representation, but I did recently start actually watching the show for the first time. I've seen like a couple episodes before. But Tony Soprano is actually like kind of good fat representation, like simply because he's one of the most nuanced characters ever to be on TV. So I watched Mad Men back in the beginning of the pandemic. And while I loved the show, I was really disappointed at like the lack of fat representation in it. And whenever fatness was mentioned, of course, it was like very moralized. And there's the whole like Betty getting fat storyline. But there just like weren't really many fat characters at all. And the ones that were there were pretty stereotypical. So I was really excited when I started watching The Sopranos and saw like, because it's set in this like gangster movie world, and it is like one of those prestige dramas with famously good writing and so many seasons and so many like hours of script to like really get deep into the character's psyche. So like, because it's a mob setting, it's like able to get deeper into those fat characters, which is really interesting. So I think that Tony Soprano is in a in an interesting way good fat representation because while he's not a good person, far from it, I, I don't even know that he's like a character you would root for. Let me be clear, I've only just started watching it, so I might have to update my thoughts on a later episode. But 
he gets such nuanced treatment and he's treated as a full person. You see his sexuality, you see his moral conflicts, you see him like being incredibly brutal and then you see him like struggling with depression and family troubles and like all this different stuff and he's he's like a fully dimensional character and he's also the lead of a TV show and like let's not leave that out cuz you know there's not many TV shows that are like helmed by a fat person and helmed by a fat person where the gimmick of the show is not because he's fat. And honestly, like him being a man probably helps. It being set in the mob world, as I said, also helps. But overall, it's been really cool to watch this very nuanced fat character go through life and have his fatness not define him, even if, because of the stereotypes associated with fatness, fatness fits well into the world of the mafia. So I'm really interested in this fat mafioso trope. I think that there's shockingly some good hidden in it. And even though the whole mafia thing does go along with those fat stereotypes of being greedy, being out of control, being immoral, etc., when really good writers write about the mob and then cast fat people to be in the mob. And the reason they do that, by the way, is because they're not trying to glamorize it, right? So they're not trying to glamorize, literally organize crime. No, they are not. So they're going to cast it with bodies that aren't going to glamorize it. It's not amazing, but I do actually think it ends up sort of doing good things for fat representation. However, I definitely do wish all the women were not um, mandatory sex objects or moms. They're like also nuanced too. I'm just saying that's how the men view them. And so they like, so they're all either like skinny and relatively conventionally attractive or they're old. So, you know, there's definitely a gender thing going on here. There's definitely a double standard, but I will say for fat men, it's a different kind of good representation. Because fat people can be bad people, just like skinny people. But the difference is, we're not bad because we're fat. You know what I'm saying? And I think a lot of times when people try to do good fat representation, they try really hard to make the characters likable in other ways. So that's how you get characters like the sweet, soft, fat boys who are like perfect in every way except for that they just happen to be fat or like a Tracy Turnblad who's like so peppy and happy and like basically just has no bad qualities and like that kind of representation is important too but also we should have these really interesting and nuanced characters who are fat but also have this duality of good qualities and bad qualities and immorality and and real emotion and like it's all there you know what I'm saying? So yeah, those are my thoughts on the fat gangster trope, a trope that I have only recently become aware of through my newfound exposure to mob media. If this is a trope you've noticed too, I would love to hear from you. My DMs are open on Instagram at morethantracyt, and you can also email morethantracyturnblad at gmail.com. And now, without further ado, my interview with Amara Janae Brady. So welcome, Amara. Hey, Evie. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so let's start from the very beginning. Can you tell us how you got into the arts? Um, I think I was five or six. I was younger than six, so four or five. And I was in preschool, and I'm from Chicago, so they took us to see a show at the Black Ensemble Theater. And <laughs> they don't... um. They write all their own materials. They pay for nobody's rights. And so they were working on a show <laughs> called um, The Other Cinderella. And almost everybody there was black. And it was life changing for me. And I was like, oh, people who look like me get to do that. I'm doing that. That's what I'm going to do. And then I kind of just like stuck to it. Like in preschool, they started us doing oratory competitions. Um, they would assign you a black historical figure and then you would research their lives and then 
present a monologue in costume about them and I was really good at it um and I did that all the way through like eighth grade and I would win the competitions and go to like the so like in grammar school you would compete against your classroom and then you would complete compete against your grade and then you would compete against everybody in the grades above you um and I did pretty well (laughs) so I was just like I just really liked it I remember like in second grade, I think I, I chose Angela Davis. When I got to grammar school, they let you choose who you wanted. So I would choose like Angela Davis. So I would choose like Marian Anderson or Lena Horne or like any number of historical figures. I think in first grade, I was Wilma Rudolph. And my dad made fun of me because I couldn't pronounce the word um, paralyzed. And so I was like, I was partialized as a child. He does not let me live <laughs> it down. It's still the thing. But that's like how I got started. I they had all these programs for us in school and so that's really where i was like oh this makes sense i love this let's do this that's awesome and then when did you start writing um (laughs) well i guess i've always been a writer um my aunt who passed away in like 2018 she loved writing poetry and so i kind of saw her doing that and then my grandmother was a high school english teacher Um, And when I was growing up, we like shared a bedroom, my grandmother and I shared a bedroom. And so I would be like, can you tuck me in and tell me a story? And she'd tuck me in and she'd say, no, I'm not telling you a story, but you can tell me one. And that was kind of just how, like I would make up stories about princesses where I was the princess or I was the warrior. Um, And then, you know, in school, I guess it really was school. Like they had a whole program that you were assigned to do called Young Authors. Oh, that's so cool. And you had to write like a whole book. And I had to do that for eight years. And so that was really very useful because I didn't know, like, I don't know that I would have found out that I was a writer had it not been for that. Um, And then of course, like I used to write songs and poems and things like that. And then I got a little discouraged. So I put the pen down for like most most of high school. By senior year, I was writing again. And then when I went away to college, I stopped writing. But by my senior year, I had had enough, um, confrontations with my professors that I started writing again. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) Sometimes that's what it takes. Well, they were just like, you know, they were like, you're really talented. But like, I was like, I'm not here to serve the narratives of white people. I'm not here to frame white stories. Like, that's not who I want to be. And they were predominantly casting women who looked like me as like, sex workers and things that I but like poorly written sex workers like, um, Brighton Beach memoirs, which are not fully formed people. And they're literally just there to service these white people. And I was like, that's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to do. And they were like, well, you're talented, but because of the way you look, it's not really going to, you're not going to have many opportunities. And so I was like, well, I will write the opportunities. (laughs) That's so awful to like be sort of indoctrinated into theater in like this gorgeous space full of like all black artists and then to have that like come in in college i mean i at the same time i'm really grateful for it like yes it was terrible and i so Mm -hmm. i wish ease for everyone who comes after me i wish ease and kindness and people who see you for who you are but at the same time i think that had i had an easier time in college i might have been a little bit more fucked up now i'm pretty fucked up as it stands like (laughs) therapy is important i'm on meds like all of those things i have like really bad depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. but i can only imagine what it would have been like had i you know been indoctrinated into this world um yeah through a guise of something that didn't exist totally because it's like everything in that world is so it's so toxic and harmful and like the longer you're sitting in that and believing that that is like the one true way like the more into you it gets then the harder it is if you ever do come to question it and Mm -hmm. you're so deep in this like life where you've been serving it forever yeah and then you have to fight your way out but if you started fighting it's a lot easier to just be like well this is my life now i fight yeah that's gorgeous so I'm wondering how did size stuff start to show up for you in all this? Like, was that a piece of the anti-blackness you were experiencing ever? Well, I think that like, I think that fat phobia when it comes to fat black women is very specific um, because there is an erasure of humanity, but it, but fat black women still exist, right? Like you have motor mouth Maybell, 
<laughs> you have um you have like any number of mammy figures and so when you talk about the history of like minstrelsy and where these ideas come from it's from there it's from birth of a nation where they depict fat black women as like these hyper sexualized beings who are also simultaneously cut off from sexuality like they talk about how they enjoy sex they you know they protrude their their breasts they mm-hmm. show themselves in that way but you never see them as desirable by anybody on screen they just tell you about these things um so i think that for me like i was really grateful for my high school experience but at the same time like i was probably no i was definitely the fattest person in my theater program in high school and my high school had like a really good program really well funded i went to a private catholic all-girls school um the thing that was there though the thing that was there was like all of these people who I transferred into my school. So all of these people had like a 10 to 11 year head start on me. Like they had been doing theater for so long and I had been doing like oratory competitions, things that were specific to me and I was the only person I had to count on. Um, and so like, I was really surprised my senior year when I got to take on one of the lead roles in 42nd Street, but I did play like Dorothy Brock. And again, like, I didn't have the, like, I, I've, I wouldn't have cast myself in any other role in that show. But of course, she is the oldest person in the show. Um, she doesn't really dance much. She is like the comedic relief because she is older, all of those things. And and so that was, I think that that's something that I, I think about now being like a 17, 18 year old playing like a 50 to 60 year old woman. <laughs> Yep. And what do you do? <laughs> so I think that it kind of like started there, but I wasn't really aware of it. And then when I went to undergrad, um, I had auditioned for this program and I didn't get in, but they told us like, if you come and join this other department, you'll have like, you'll still be in the theater department, but we'll give you a different distinction and you'll have an easier time when you re-audition. I was still not accepted. I think I auditioned three times and I was never accepted by them. And there were a lot of rumors about the main acting professor and how he felt about women's bodies on stage, specifically fat women's bodies on stage and how he like, he believed in like the Grecian tradition of like men and long lanky bodies on stage. And so you were like, well, fuck what? I don't have a chance. Um, And I think that that like followed me into when I transferred that followed me into the next institution that I went to. And again, like, they told me you're talented, but like, you're not going to be able to change things. And I think that like, there was a production of Trojan Women, my junior year. Mm-hmm. I actually did that show in college. <laughs> I wasn't cast because nobody wanted to touch me. I will say that like, I am not hard to love. I am not hard to work with. But I've become very difficult when you don't treat me with the respect that I deserve. Yeah. And I was, I've always been that way. I've always been like, if you don't see me and you don't treat me like a person, we're going to have a problem. Yeah. Because I'm a person. Because I'm a person before I'm anything else. And that's how I need you to see me. I don't want you to mistreat me. I don't want you to talk shit about me. I don't want you to make predeterminations based on how I look. Like, I just want you to treat me like a person. I want you to meet me, hear what I'm saying, see what I'm doing, see me for my talent and not just like this fat black body that the soul comes in yeah and that should be the bare minimum but in in a lot of times in the arts you're brought up thinking that like you deserve to be punished for advocating for yourself yeah and and so like i think that i (laughs) by the time i finished college i was like so we burn bridges now (laughs) and that was just how i kind of like maneuvered through the world i was like bridges get burned that's the only way you you get to keep your integrity like if I sit here and I let you treat me any kind of way, you don't have to go home and deal with it. You don't care. Like in the words of Asada Shakur, like you cannot appeal to the morality of your oppressor. So mm-hmm. if you are oppressing me and you enjoy it, then you're not gonna go home and think about it. Do you know who's gonna have to think about it? Me. I'm gonna right. have to go home and live with myself and live with the fact that I've let you treat me like shit. And that's not a thing that I enjoy doing. But we were doing <laughs> Trojan Women. And I remember the professor who was directing it was like, before the semester started, said she wanted to have people over um, to read through it. 
and we read through it and there she was like i haven't decided the direction i'm going it'll be one of two ways and if i cast it if i decide to go in this non-traditional direction in like a post-apocalyptic society then that's literally exactly what my school did (laughs) well we'll get to that but she was like um then I'll cast it non-traditionally. But if I do it in the traditional way, then I'm going to cast it more traditionally. And you know what that means to me. That means yeah. that if you're doing post-apocalyptic, that means that my black ass gets to be considered. And if you're doing a traditional Greek adaptation, I am no longer under consideration. And so the week of auditions, it made its way back to me that she was doing it in the traditional way. So I figured I didn't have a chance and it really hurt. That shit hurt. And I had no opportunity, like I had no choice because I was on scholarship. So like I had to audition. They don't give you that option. And I was like crying at my callback and somebody went and told her that I was crying. And she was like, I'm not casting her because she's already decided that she doesn't have a place here. When she told me I didn't have a place here. And I was like, are you mad? Are you what? So it was just like, it, it became very apparent. Like, I can't separate any bits and pieces of myself from anything, you know, like the head of my department sat me down one day, he was really upset with me because I told him that his program didn't have real opportunities for students of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was like, are you calling me a liar? And I was like, no, I'm just saying that the thing that you think exists does not exist here. Like you giving people scholarship money is one thing and that's great and you should totally do that. But also we deserve the same opportunities as our peers. Like we're on scholarship because you think we're talented. You think that we deserve to be here, but you don't utilize us unless we're framing white people. And that's silly. Y'all do one play about black people every three to four years. I've been here for three years. So I missed the opportunity to do the one black show. And now I don't get to work at all. And that's silly. And I remember him sitting me down and him saying, do you know what your problem is? you think that people don't like you because of your weight or because of whatever, but it's because he was basically like, it's your attitude. And I was like, I never told you that I thought people didn't like me or didn't want to cast me because of my weight. That's not a thing I said to you, but you've decided that about me and you're telling on yourself when you say things like that. Right. College sucked. (laughs) That's that's the end of it. (laughs) College sucked. That sounds like a horrendous experience. And it's amazing to me that you always had, like, the self-worth to be like, no, fuck you. I deserve to be treated normally. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. And I don't I don't want to, like, give off the... <laughs> I just, like, I enjoy being contrarian. And so <laughs> when people were treating me poorly, I was like, no. I, I just... <laughs> I've always enjoyed questioning authority. Like, even my parents, my parents, <laughs> we had a very tumultuous relationship because like my parents Mm -hmm. didn't raise me my grandmother did and so I was always like why why do I have to do this why is this the way and you know like I come from a very like Baptist or non-denominational Christian upbringing and a lot of the people who ran like the youth church was like Amara is so rude and my parents were like no she's not rude she just questions authority so (laughs) that was where it started and then I was like Oh, this is the reason behind it. It's because I don't like the way you're talking to me. It's because I don't like the way you're treating me. Yeah. So as you're transitioning out of college and you have this attitude that's like sounds really healthy that you're just going to burn bridges and like it's inevitable. How did how did that like impact your professional journey starting out after school? I mean, I think I had found some form of support before I graduated, which was really useful. Um, It was just like it was really the summer before I graduated was truly a lesson in go where you are loved and supported. Um, And I felt really supported with the summer program that I went to. I went to Barrington stage Company's musical theater conservatory. And Mm -hmm. it was a much small, like the other option was to apply to Williamstown, but they didn't have, they didn't have any scholarship money and Barrington did. Yeah. My, my school scholarshiped me into Williamstown. See, no, the summer I went up, um my school gave me the money to go to artists striving to end poverty's artist a citizen conference at juilliard which was 800 dollars that summer they gave me that money and then i knew that they weren't going to give me the money for williamstown um so a couple of my friends did do williamstown that summer but i did barrington and i was really happy with the choice like yeah. it, it worked out for me um because you know, like the those were the people who believed in me and those were the people who supported me. Like Tim Perret is still one of my um 
biggest supporters now. He's now the artistic director of Michigan Stage, and he was the educational director at Barrington. He was the reason I came into the program in the first place. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, like, he created the bridge that led me to meet Joe Iconis, which was really good for me. And yeah. Joe saw me and Joe respected me like almost immediately because I was just like, I was just so excited about the work and I love, mm-hmm. I love Joe. I loved Joe then and I love him now. And so that was really important to like meet all of these people because like my school was like, I remember senior year we had a uh, capstone and the head of my department was talking shit about um, Jeff McCartney. Uh, he was like, he, I think he had a Tony nom for, for you're in town, but like I had met him the summer before doing a bounty hunter at Barrington stage with Joe. And he was telling all these people how he was working at a dinner theater. And I was like, Jeff's not doing that. Jeff's working on counselor at a major regional theater right now. What are you talking about? And like, it was so useful to me to know that they were so full of shit. Yeah. They just didn't, they were just talking out of their ass because they could and they were trying to scare kids. And I remember at one point, like I spoke to one of my teachers and I said, hey, like, can you please stop bringing in people into the senior capstone who are telling everybody to quit? Like they brought in an alumni who was like, he was very old (laughs) and he had like a program, he had made a lot of money doing some type of like role playing thing, but like he wasn't in it, he just created it. He was like, if anybody would have made it, it would have been me. But the war and 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 it was just like the shittiest thing. And I love just to like, tell you to quit. They love to like put you through four years of like immense financial investment, immense emotional investment. And then at the end be like, yeah, most of you aren't going to make it in this business. And we're going to do it now. We're going to tell you to quit now. So you yeah. can't blame us down the line. And I was just like, I remember asking her, I was like, can you bring in somebody who's not going to tell us to quit? Yeah. And she was like, I don't know anybody. And I was like, then you need to meet new people. This is silly. <laughs> this is terrible. I I know people who have told me not to quit. Yeah. Well, anyway, I just, I, I love that you got that experience because I think it's so important to get the perspective outside of your school program. And I think a lot of times um, they you know, really have a different perspective than the actual contemporary industry has because they're all older and when they were working, it was a lot more cutthroat. I mean, my first year, I really struggled. I had like massive suicidal ideations, had a plan and everything. And um, I remember going to the only professor who I felt like was on my side and asking her for a letter of recommendation to apply to Steppenwolf. And she said, no. She said, I don't think that you are like mentally ready to go into the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm completely honest, she probably would have said the same thing to me were she there after junior year. But it was just like, I needed to be in a different environment. It wasn't going to change who I was because I didn't change who I was at Barrington. And I pissed off a lot of people. Like, mm-hmm. I was the only <laughs> black woman in my program that year. And I remember. I remember a couple of things because that was the summer that um, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were murdered within yeah. 24 hours of each other. And I remember going to class the next day and I remember everybody acting like nothing had happened. And I remember being so startled. Uh, Deborah Jo Rupp saw me crying in a parking lot and <laughs> held me while I cried. Like that was what I was doing. And I wouldn't have, I didn't change myself. I didn't do anything different. Mm-hmm. I just found the people who like worked with me. And that wasn't my peers. That was like the working actors who are still some of my greatest friends to this day. Like Ronald Pete, who I met up there. Um, Miles G. Jackson, Eli Pauly, all of these people who were working understood what I was feeling. They understood what was going on. And so those were the people I was in community with as opposed to being forced to be in community with my classmates and ending up in these relationships of convenience when they don't actually care about the same things I care about. Yeah. So it's important to get outside of outside of that microcosm. For sure. Because life gets better outside of that microcosm. It's still hard, but you find your people. I also want to point out, and we can cut this out if you want, but I know that the school that you went to, I believe, is one that has famously done weigh-ins in um, the dance program. Am I right? I have no idea about the weigh-ins there. Um, This can be on the record. I don't care. 
um, my the head of my department would go through the first day uh, with his freshman acting class and say, you're fit and fuckable, you're fat and funny. You're fit and fuckable, you're fat and funny. Oh my fucking god. Yeah, he would like line you up on the stage and say those things. So like, not unfounded, it's basically the South. And also, I will advocate till the end of me that the South is not a geographical location, it is a mindset. Hmm. Did you experience other like instances of being like really pigeonholed into fat and funny in college? I I mean, I'm funny, don't get me wrong. But I don't <laughs> I don't like that I don't lead with that. Um right. I probably like if I had to say I lead with anything in my acting, it's always been my vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um and so that has always been a com- a topic of conversation. The head of my department used to tell me things like he used to sit me down cuz like my audition I remember I had this cute little dress that I had bought from Macy's. It was black and it had red roses. And I think I wore like boots and I did all of my monologues. He literally made me do all seven of the monologues that I had prepared. And then he sat me down and he was like, can we have a real conversation? And I said, yes. And he said, you need to lose some weight. I want you to be healthy and I want you to be able to move. That's important to me. Now, I have always been fat. I was actually... At that point, I think that was the smallest I'd ever been. The highest my weight has ever been is like 350 pounds. But like, I've always been able to do the splits. Um, I've always been able to move. I've always been able to do the things that I need to do. Like was still taking Dunham technique classes, all of those things. And so he made some like determinations about my body just because he saw it. He didn't yeah. see me in any movement dance, any movement calls. He didn't see me do any of those things. So he made some determinations and I said, okay. And my freshman year, I think I dropped 20 pounds. And after I dropped 20 pounds, he sat me down and he was like, I think you're perfect the way you are. You don't need to lose any more weight. Um, I know it's really hard for you being the opposite of what your generation considers attractive. But let me tell you that like, fucking God, the people who are most like, sexually attractive are usually the worst in bed. That was a conversation that he had with me on a couple of occasions. Oh my God. Um, And so it was just like, you get to a place where you're like, Okay. <laughs> the way pe- the ways people like try to encourage fat people and like l- let us know there is like hope for us or whatever. They they really tell on themselves with that. You they know do. What I mean? I'm like like I'm like would be like some boys like a little extra. I'm like <laughs> Yes. I don't exist. The whole boys. of my existence is to please the male gaze. Of course. It's not. Mine is not. I refuse to believe that. But like that was just like that was what I was going through. Um what was the question? Oh Oh my god, I don't even remember anymore. That's fair. <laughs> I was just asking fair. about other experiences with that phobia oh. in college and um, how that how that juxtaposed with out of college. I mean, it was still out of college. You got some real close-minded people in this industry. I remember somebody was like, I was asking questions one day. I won't say the organization's name or anything, but I was at, I was at a panel and I was like, so what do we do? Like, how do we get people to change? How do we get things to shift? And this very high up white woman looked at me with sad eyes. And then maybe five minutes later, she was called out to leave. <laughs> and when she left, the other white woman was like, we wait for them to die. And I was just like, okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, But like when I first moved to the city, I was in residency at Open Jar and one of the workshops was with the casting director, really high up casting, like not Mm -hmm. high up, but like works a lot regionally casting director. Mm -hmm. And I had just seen Prince of Broadway and I had seen Brianna Parham seeing Cabaret and it changed my life. And like, she also sang, will he like me, which was so formative for me. And I like cried to her and told her how special that moment was. And she's like, you sing whatever you want, baby. Don't let them tell you anything else. And so I decided that for my showcase, I wanted to sing Cabaret and I sang it in a workshop for this uh, casting director. And he looked at me afterwards and he was like, why would you choose that? I would have the hardest time selling you in that role. And I cast that show regionally a lot. And then he goes on to say, the good thing about you is we always need motor mouth Maybells. I am 22 oh, at this God. point, And I'm like, I'm not going to play a like late 40s, early 50 year old like motor mouth with two teens. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I refuse. <laughs> 
And also just like, <laughs> I think that like, because of the way I look, people want me to sound like Jennifer Holiday or mm-hmm. um, early era Jennifer Hudson. And I don't. And I've never claimed to do that. Yeah. And people put all of the, like, I think people think I'm supposed to sound like Anna James. And I don't. I just sound like myself. And and yeah. I, I yearn for the day where that is like enough. Where mm-hmm. I'm not compared to any other fat black femmes. Where like I'm not expected to like bring down the roof like Alex Newell. I'm not Alex Newell. I'm Amara. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm, I'm her. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. Um, and so... It it has still been a thing, but like even when that casting director said that, you know, I went back to the people I was studying with and I told them what he said, and they were like, <laughs> they were like, it's they were like, he didn't see the show, he doesn't understand, yeah. And it's just like I I'm really glad that I had those people in my corner because I think, you know, a big part of it for me is always like, how do I surmount the voices that are in my head, the voices that find their way in, like his voice could easily have found his way into my head. But like, no, it's just like, he's not my person. He is not the person who sees me. Yeah. I also probably don't want to work at most of the places that he's kept. Like, I don't want to do that work. And that's fine. Yeah. It's just like having someone else, having anyone else who provides like an alternative or validates an alternative opinion or like way for the world to be is is so like life-changing and it's so necessary absolutely and i think there's a really big divide also between new york and regional theater sometimes in this kind of casting Mm -hmm. and like i have definitely felt like more nervous to go in for things like i would be more comfortable going in for something that's off broadway as opposed to like a regional season like all my friends are i mean that's because that's the like Everybody treats Broadway and off-Broadway. They treat New York like it is the end-all, be-all. Like, I remember when I did Spring Awakening years ago, mm-hmm. you know, I was cast as Marta. And I was like, is the only reason I was cast as Marta because Lily Cooper did it on Broadway? Possibly. Like, a lot of people feel like that's the only opportunity that they get. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of regional productions of Spring Awakening, that is the only Black person you will get in that show. Right. And they just pick whoever looks like the person who originated it. It's not even looks like. It's just like that's the one role that a black person gets to play. Yeah. Like I had I had a really good read for Ilsa and they said it at first rehearsal. They were like, Amara had a really good read for Ilsa. But they ultimately gave it to this other person. It was also like storefront theater in Chicago is another thing. And everybody cast their friends. And I was literally yeah. the only person who they hadn't known for 10 years. So sure, all of those things. But it's just mm-hmm. like. You get to a place where you feel like the only roles you can do are the ones that black people or that fat people played on the stage in New York. Yeah. Those are your only opportunities. And so then you get pigeonholed into one role where everybody else gets to audition for anybody. Totally. And then sometimes you don't even get the role that's written for the fat person. And you go, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, let's talk about that a little bit. Do you have oh, any, God. Um, got any horror stories? <laughs> sure. Non-union was a whole horror story. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the union is that much better. We have a lot of work to do. I'm not advocating for anybody to do anything because I'm annoyed with the union. But mm-hmm. I was working on a non-union production of Bring It On the Musical. And I was in callbacks. I was in like, final callbacks for Bridget, mm-hmm. which is the fat character in the show. Oh boy. Yep. And then I didn't get it. And then there was another fat black woman there who I was certain got it over me. And then she left. And I was like, what? And then they were like, when I came to rehearsal, they had given the role to this like five foot two, probably a hundred pounds soaking wet white woman. What the hell? And I was like, excuse me? Happened so often. And then she wasn't even able to be there for the whole run. So they cast another five foot two, oh my God, hundred pound soaking wet Latina as her understudy who would go on for two shows. Wow. Um, and I don't care. I'm going to say it with my chest. Shorty who played bit Bridget couldn't sing. So it was just like, <laughs> what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. Like she could flip her ass off. She was a badass dancer. But Shorty couldn't sing. That makes her right for like so many of the other roles in the show. And so I was, and then like I remember crying one day because they were talking about padding her. And I was like, if you pad her while I am literally the only fat person here, I will walk and I will not do this show. Yeah. And, and so they were like, okay. 
we and then like I had to explain things to people and I was like mm-hmm. y'all not because like I remember the stage manager was a very nice older black woman mm-hmm. and when I she was like why are you crying like why are you so upset about this and I explained it to her I was like this role is written for a plus size person and y'all did not cast a plus size person and I was like and now you're making a caricature of my lived experience and yeah. I won't do that with you I won't I won't co-sign this I won't do that and she was like oh, I didn't realize that that character was supposed to be plus size. That makes so much sense. script queen? Like, what? <laughs> Old black theaters are a different conversation for a completely different day. But Ooh. she was like, I didn't realize it. And she was like, that makes so much sense. I understand now the lines about junk in the trunk, the lines about this, the lines about that. And also the director at the time was somebody who I admired for a very long time. And she really just like fucked me up for a couple months. Like she put me in a corset um because she bring it on yes Mm -hmm. and we had a conversation about it because she just left it on my dressing table and i was like what did you want this for and she was like i want you to wear it i'm the director it's my prerogative and i was like no i wasn't asking you that i was asking you what scene you wanted this this dress to be in and she told me and then she was like she made me put on the course and she was like this is how i want you to look and it was a quick change it was literally my only she gave me one scene and one song in the show um which like was I grateful for that? Was I grateful that this like person who I admired and who I loved saw me in that way? Yeah, but also you got some really fucked up views, sis. Yeah. And I remember her telling me like, do you think I wanted to wear the corset when they made me do it? And I was like, I don't know what you like, sis. I'm just telling you that I like my body. I have fought for this body. I fight to exist in this body. And you knew what I looked like when you cast me. And if you had a problem with it, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, my God. The way that people will blame you after the fact. And it's like, no, you cast me. (laughs) You saw what this body looked like. They also, like that production, they also had these like skimpy uniforms for for Jackson. Mm -hmm. Where they had like tiny sparkly boy shorts for the girls. And these like tops that you couldn't wear a bra with. Mm. And so they didn't have a conversation with me. They just ordered me a boy's uniform no yeah and oh my God. i remember crying about that too because i was just like you could have just had a conversation about me conversation with me instead of about me yeah and they were like we just didn't want you to be uncomfortable well now i'm really fucking uncomfortable because you've made some determinations about my body and about how i feel in my body and about the way i want my body seen on stage and that's yeah. fucked assuming that a person whose body you don't think is desirable even if it's just according to society and that's not your personal opinion and then treating them as if that is also their opinion and like i'm sure you've dealt with this like unsolicited encouragement like yas queen for doing almost nothing Mm -hmm. like you should be more confident or um you're beautiful like well no i actually don't i beat people to the punch i won't lie to you like i'm (laughs) i post things and i'm like I'm the hottest thing you'll see today. And then people (laughs) confirm that. And I'm like, that's what it should be. That's the way Mm -hmm. it should be, you know? But like, I, I think that I'm beautiful. I'm very aware of, of the, the space that I take up now. And that took a long, like, I've never thought that I was ugly, but I do know that I sometimes think that like my fatness negates all the good things about me because of the way we treat fat people in society. I completely feel you. doesn't matter how talented I am. doesn't matter how beautiful I am. I'm still fat. And yeah. people treat that like it is yeah. the worst thing you could be most times. Or like that you have to be more of those things to like make up for it and get people to see something besides your fatness. Watching people perform like high femininity because they are fat is 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 very like sad to me. But like watching people perform high femininity because it is not afforded to fat fems makes me really happy. It's the only reason why I still identify as a woman. It's because... I get to fuck people up and I enjoy it. <laughs> I love that for you. Me too. So I know um, your a lot of your work centers fat black femmes as well. I was thinking about this one show in particular that I read about on your website. What? My dick is David Duke? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and like I, uh, um, I noticed a couple of them sort of dealt with desirability. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that my hope is that my work, my work usually centers me. And right now, my vessel is fat. So yeah, yeah, it centers fat black women. For all we know right now, (laughs) that's what it is. And for for the foreseeable future, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, My Dick is David Duke or the Sad Fat Niggers Can't Get a Date is the show that was kind of born out of 
this real life conversation ahead with this very thin older white woman um but we were at like we were at some party after a performance and she was like she asked the very invasive question which it feels invasive to me um i've never been very i have been very open about my lack of a dating life but like for someone to say are you dating felt very like invasive to me and she was like are you dating and i was like no and she was like well are you on the apps and i was like i hate the apps it's also not super helpful to me as a fat black femme because one there are all of these people who are purporting these fictitious studies about black women's desirability being the lowest there are all of these studies that actually prove that black women have the hardest time on dating apps and then i'm also fat Mm-hmm. And I don't have like I don't have a fat face for the most part. So when people see your face and then they don't see the rest of your body and then people show up and they're like, oh, she fat. Like yep. nobody wants to deal with that. Nobody. Absolutely nobody. And I was just like, I would rather meet you in person and be like, you've seen my body. You see what it looks like. You knew what you were getting into from the from the jump. Mm-hmm. And like even when I am on dating apps, which is very infrequently, it's never amounted to much because it's literally just fetish. It's just people making me a fetish. It's just people going, can I fuck you? Like I remember being in school. We were walking to a club one night. I didn't go clubbing very often. I still don't. I don't like it. But like we were walking and somebody who I knew from school leaned out of a window and was like, hi, Laura. And then she had like these two white guys in the car with her, her two friends. And one of them was like, can I pee in your ass? And I was like, no. Does that work for you? Why would you ask somebody you don't know that on a street corner? What is wrong with you? Who raised you? And I just, I think about that a lot. I think about all of those things a lot. And so I decided I wanted to write a show about it. Also, my dick is David Duke is a direct quote from um, John Mayer from this interview he had with Playboy in 2010. And I had a huge crush on John Mayer. Um, And then he was like, what do you say? He was like, I have a Benton in heart, but uh, David Duke cock. My cock is a white supremacist. And so it was like this, it was like a convergence of like, I was utilizing the show as a convergence of like white supremacy and fat phobia, which like mm-hmm. fat phobia is obviously parent child. Hi. Absolutely. Um, and so I made this like little short movie for Ars Nova's Ant Fest this year. And it's just a bunch of like, it's a variety show kind of in the style of like, what I was saying was if the Carol Burnett show and random acts of flyness had a baby and it was about my dating life, that would be what this show was. <laughs> Um, and so I like made fun of things that I wanted to make fun of. Like I have, I still haven't watched Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women, but I made fun of Joe March's final monologue, not final, but her monologue about like, I'm just so lonely because like watching that monologue, I was just like, I want to fight you. I would like to fight you. Because, like, the things that you're talking about are things that Black women and women of color have largely never been afforded. People loving them and the ability to not work. We have always worked. We have never not worked. Yeah. And I hate that. And so I wrote about that. And then I also, (laughs) I spend a lot of time watching. I like rom-coms and I am a Pisces. And so romance (laughs) is is my lifeblood. Um, But, like, there's also, you know, a joke about... um, there's a skit that's like my own kind of curiosity around she's the man. This one scene in she's the man where um, <laughs> Viola is talking to her no name redheaded friend and Viola's like, isn't he so hot? And she's like, who Duke? Yeah. And then Viola's like, no, Sebastian. But he says I'm not his type. And then her redheaded friend who literally has no other lines in this entire movie is like, you're everyone's type. And I was just like, what does that feel like? What does yeah. that what is that like? Cause I've never known it. I am always doing all the loops in my head. I'm like, okay, okay. I know this person has dated black women before. So that means that blackness is okay. But have they dated fat people before? Does that mean fatness is okay? Or okay, they dated somebody who was not skinny, who was not straight sized, who was what I would consider fat. Do they also date black people? Do they also date queer people? Or is that a no no for them? Who 
who do I actually have access to who actually would desire me as a partner, not just as something to fetish or yeah. fetishize? Like who, what? <laughs> I feel like I'm always jumping through hoops. And so that show was kind of the start of that conversation for me. That's gorgeous. And I think that's such an experience of being like in any kind of undesirable group. And then of course it's like compounded and compounded in layers. Yeah. I just always try to make everybody a little bit uncomfortable. I try to make myself a little bit uncomfortable. Like I follow a couple of people on Instagram who sometimes make me uncomfortable. There's um, a man with cerebral palsy whose like whole mission has become make disability sexy. I love that. And like talking about like uh, making disabled people desirable or people with disabilities desirable. And I find that fascinating. And I, I am interrogating why um why his motto makes me uncomfortable i was not uncomfortable seeing him shirtless i was not uncomfortable seeing him in sexual situations but the moment he gave language to it something graded and i want to know what that is yeah um i think like ryan hadid's work which is mm -hmm. like around desirability also being um a person with disabilities like he also has cerebral palsy he has this beautiful show called um hi are you single and so like i'm watching people and i'm learning things from different communities because i i see the intersections of things and i'm curious about how it works i'm curious about desirability i'm curious about the things that we give up to live in this godforsaken society all those things yeah i i'm so fascinated by desirability and like how paramount it seems to be thought of as um, particularly for women and femmes. Um, and like, I just, I, I wonder if it's comes from that whole like his history of like specifically for white women, like having to find a man to support you. And like, that's your mechanism of survival. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the, the things people attach to it now are incredible to me because, I don't think that it should matter and who gets treated with respect and yet who gets treated with respect is exactly correlated with what's thought of as desirable sexually. Mm -hmm. So it's like, maybe we should talk about why are these things correlated and where's it Colorism, desirability, fat phobia, mm -hmm. small fats, pretty privilege, all the things. Absolutely. It's all there. So what characters or representations of fat people and particularly fat black feminine people uh, did you see growing up that like maybe taught you something about fatness? You know, I was an ungrateful little shit. I won't lie to you there. I was. <laughs> um, my, my family used to tell me that I reminded them of Queen Latifah. Uh, my mom used to give me a lot of cornrows and I hated that. I don't. I don't yeah. know why it's it's the association with fatness totally um and now I'm like oh my god that was such a compliment and I think about Queen Latifah and her work a lot and how she has positively influenced my life both as like a fat rom like last holiday is a perfect rom-com it's a phenomenal movie I agree and like just right is also a phenomenal movie and she gave us so many of these rom-coms and she was doing so much and nobody again it might be tied to like the mummification of fatter black women that like nobody threw up oh my god we have this fat black woman in these romantic situations can we have a fat person in these romantic situations because she's a black woman there's po it's possible that that's the thing but like she did so much for so many of us and I think that like she's the one that I think about a lot. It's her, all of her movies are movies that I consistently go back to. I consistently find myself going back to. And I mean, like, I think that I, I don't know why, but for some reason, it's probably my parents, it's probably my family. I would say it's likely my family who made me feel like anything was possible. Yeah. So I would watch movies and I would never think that there was no possible way that I could be included in that. Do you know what I mean? Like I would watch yeah. Pride and Prejudice and I, in my mind, I've always been Elizabeth Bennet. Yeah. And, and so I was like, I'm Lizzie Bennet. <laughs> what about it? Who's going to tell me anything? I would love you to play Lizzie Bennet any day Thank now. I, I went in. One of the artistic directors I knew let me come in and I was really grateful for that. But I was so fucking nervous that I, I don't think I bombed it, but I didn't do it the way I wanted to because I was stressed. 
Because, you know, like the one time you get the opportunity, it feels like it's never going to come again. And that's yeah. hard. But I will say I love Kate Hamill's adaptations. Of most, like I, my friend Dominique Ryder, brilliant non-binary black director, <laughs> calls me a period hoe. <laughs> Which is pretty accurate. I just really love, like, I have two masks. One says, one has like Pemberley on it and it says, uh, go to Pemberley, they said. He won't be home, they said. And I think it's hilarious. <laughs> and the other one says like obstinate and headstrong girl. Um, so I like love Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. I I don't hate Bridgerton. I watched it all. Um, Emma is always really interesting to me. Any of Jane Austen's novels are really interesting to me. But like, I, for some reason, I found myself resonating with these pieces, with these like white women <laughs> they're about desirability politics i guess when you think about it and and the way class works class yeah. distinction as as a tool or a proponent of desirability politics is really interesting to me yeah um so i think that those were really formative to me mm -hmm. um and i think that like specifically pride and prejudice the way that darcy becomes a better person because he's called out on his shit yeah makes sense to my head and it's always made sense in my head and i'm like that's the way relationships work that's the way we should be as people like your partner should be the person who like motivates you they shouldn't have to ask you but they should be the person who motivates you to be better yeah um so i think that that's a part of it um who else i mean i i monique for all her problems fat mm -hmm. girls was life-changing yeah for me um as a babe as a little babe watching <laughs> BT when I shouldn't have been watching BT. Um, <laughs> I think Raven Simone. Yeah. Also a very problematic ass human. But like when she said, I'm from all seven continents of Africa or countries of Africa. I was like, what? oh my God. She said continents. She said continents. <laughs> and I was like, ma'am, what? Do you know how the world? Never mind. Um, Raven Simone was important. I think it was just like these beautiful black women or black people who were like yeah still loved and what mm -hmm. and the thing about it was like the thing i say now is like whenever people are like well it's not realistic for fat people to be in love i'm like i am a product of fat women getting loved on i am a product <laughs> of fat people falling in love mm -hmm. that's how i know it exists you can't right? tell me otherwise because i've seen it yeah i wouldn't be here how about that and when you how live like that? with that in your head so much and then you actually see a fat person in love it gets so confusing to you like i i mean i certainly had that in my mind and like i would you know i would see a couple and like one of them would be fat or both of them would be fat and like you you have to spin all these narratives about it to justify its existence it can't just be in your head and like if it could the world would be a lot better place i can't remember what movie that is i think it's what is it amy runs a marathon or something Brittany Have runs you, a marathon that one. I yeah that movie but <gasps> i think that that scene that's in that movie right where she goes off on someone who's fat who's dating like a not fat person yeah that is in that movie yeah i thought it was really interesting like yeah. i don't do that to people but it's just that it was so like huh. i just be minding my business i'm like yeah. what do i care who you're dating it's like people who are so pressed about not being fat then when they see a fat person who is loved or has the things they want, they're like, you cheated. How dare you? How dare like, you beat the system when I didn't? <laughs> right. Yeah, I think the feeling is like, it should have been me. I don't even think it's, it should have been me. It's just like, how did you beat the system? I couldn't yeah. beat the system. And if anybody should have beat the system, it should have been me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's spot on. Okay. So now moving on to our final question, which is, uh, do you have any issues you see with fat representation or any guidelines for making better fat characters, especially as a person who makes their own work? I'm pretty positive Jared Leto is in a fat suit for House of Gucci, and I just yeah. feel like we could not. Um, still asking for the bare minimum here, people. Also, stop casting that man. He be sending people use condoms and shit because he's a fucking method actor. And if you're if you're like process impedes on the process of your fellow actors, you shouldn't be cast. Uh, you should find a new way to do that. Um, I think I just want more fat people in shows. I want like I love Insecure, but Homegirl is like the comedic relief was not great for me. Mm -hmm. And I think I also just like. 
I had a really hard time with Issa Rae's transition from like Issa on awkward black girl to Issa in insecure. Cause she went from looking like a regular human to looking like a supermodel all the time. And it was very stressful for me because I was like, well, fuck if Issa has to do it. Yeah. And I know that that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. And I, I am reconciling with that the same way that like a lot of people were really disappointed when Adele was losing weight or when Lizzo was trying to lose weight. It's because we, we lack these um, people that we get so attached to these people and they're just people. They're yeah. not the movement. They don't have to be the movement. They've never agreed to be the movement. And we put all these pressures and these pedestals on them and it's none of their business. It's not, Issa's, my, my issues with Issa's transition have nothing to do with Issa and everything to do with me. Everything to do with the way society views people, everything to do with that. It ain't got shit to do with Issa. I still love her. I love her a lot. And my issues are mine. Like, and I think that we have to own that. We have to start going like, that's not actually that person's fault. That's, that's a thing that I put on them. And I think that we have to treat like the same way I want the world to treat black femmes with grace is the same way I want the world to treat like fat people with grace, because it's hard. And if anybody in any point in their life said, I no longer want to be oppressed by society. And this is one thing I can do to change it. I wouldn't, I can't fault you for it. 100%. I know what it's like. Yeah, I live it. I know how difficult this is. I know how terrible this can be. So you want to lose weight or you want to go have uh, surgery to go lose weight? I, I, what am I going to say? Yeah. What can I say? I can't protect you from the hate you're going to get. I can't keep Lizzo from getting all of the hate comments about how she is upholding a bad lifestyle or like how she needs to cover up. I can't do those things. So I can't fault you if she ever decided that she wanted to lose weight. What am I going to say? I'm going to shut my mouth because it's none of my business. Yeah. Um, I think that I just want more fat representation and I want it. I want fully formed people, not characters. Amen. Yeah. That's it. So it's time for Cast Me Cowards, which is when you tell me one role that you should play that wouldn't traditionally be cast with you. And um, this is super related to your little web series that I found you from, which is Skinny and White Aren't Character Traits. In this paper, I'll explain. It's on YouTube. If you guys are listening to this, I think you should watch it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you um, for that plug. It's like, it's just cast me cowards on so many different roles. I watched the the Rizzo one and I was like, oh my goodness, because it's all from such a dramaturgical perspective. And I was like, that's that's in the text you can't pretend that's not in the text thank you that was a plan um i don't know i think the more i found myself in the work of other people the less i want to be there i'm just like you know i've read it now Mm -hmm. i've seen what i need to see and it's a no i've seen what i need to see um so i don't have a whole lot of things there are certain writers who i would love to work with um, I love Ngozi Anianwu. I love Marcus Gardley. I love Alicia Harris. Shayna Taub. I enjoy Pigpen Theater Company. Um, but like for the most part, my dream is my work now. I've been working on this musical called The Wickedness of Men or Love Songs for the End of the World for a few years now. And it is about a queer black woman who's chosen to carry the second coming of the Christ child and defies God and tells him no. I really enjoy it. Um, They're like satanic nuns. God is a hosier looking white man. Uh, She falls in love with the lesbian angel Gabrielle. It's great. Lilith's there. It's a party. So I really want to do that one. Um, I've been working on another musical called Manic Pixie Dream Girls Aren't Black which is about a data scientist named Delilah who wants to be a video game designer and she gets trapped in her own video game. <laughs> um, I really enjoy that one. I love the music that I've created for it. There are androids. There's a really funny moment. It's very good where she goes like, um, you didn't tell me the androids were girls. And the person who's with her is like, the androids are androids. It's really weird that you gender them. Please don't tell me you're one of those like, uh gross intolerant people she's like no i'm just queer and girls are hot so (laughs) you should program that musical for that line alone um i've been working on this play called when we were gods since college that was my capstone it was about it is about 
or it's based off of this wooden carving from the 1600s that depicts the Venus de Milo as a black woman. Really fond of that one. Also really fond of this new play I've been working on called The Beautiful Things Are Gonna Kill You, which is about an interracial lesbian relationship gone awry. Mm. Um, and like lastly, if HBO wanted to pick up my pilot or any of them, cause I have like six, I've been working on a pilot uh, about a, a little black girl's experience in a drama program uh, for college. And it's called nobody like parentheses S me. <laughs> so nobody like me flash nobody likes me. Oh, I love that. Um, and I think it's a really good time. Anyway, I think that you should program my work. Even if it's not done, you should give me developmental opportunities. I write really fast and I'm very good at it. Hell yeah. That's it. Those are my dream roles. So if lay people out here just wanted to follow you and see your work, where could we find it? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Brady, not the bunch. I love that so much. Thank you. I, I was tired of people singing the Brady bunch at me. Um, <laughs> Fair. And on Twitter at Amara Janae. And if you go to either of those places, you'll find a link tree with my website and Patreon info if you want to become a patron. All of those things. Gorgeous. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me here. Thank um, you. Any, any final things you want to say or goodbye? Please uh, get vaccinated. Please wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm scared. I'm scared too. <laughs> Please do those things so that I can like keep making theater for you and you can actually come see it because Fauci is saying that we're not going back into lockdown and I don't want people to die anymore. I mean, I know that's inevitable, but we we can prolong some of this death. Oh, fantastic. Final thing to leave us with. Well, have a great rest of your day, Amara. It was so fun talking to you and I wish you all the best in all of your amazing work. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to More Than Tracy Turnblad. If you liked it, hit subscribe and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome. Also, follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, all at More Than Tracy T. And just tell your friends. Word of mouth is great, too. You can find more information at morethantracyturnblad.com. Thank you.